let's uh, let me pray. Is this on? Cheers, good. Right here. Uh, let me pray for us as we look at this uh, this passage from Hosea together. I love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Uh, Heavenly Father, we again as we uh, gather together this afternoon, we th- we're thinking about your love. Father, we want to pray that as we see uh, your love uh, displayed through your prophet Hosea, uh, Father, we pray that we might delight more and more that you are a God who is relentless in pursuing us as your people to set your love upon us. Father, we uh, pray that you would uh, open these words up to us uh, this afternoon. Please uh, help us to uh, to concentrate, to listen well. And as uh, you speak to us, that we might uh, know that these are tender words spoken to us. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Uh, 2018, I I was able to go to a conference in Jerusalem uh, with... Uh, folk from all around the world, and it was extraordinary for lots of reasons. But one of the things was you never quite knew who you would meet next. And and uh, after you know, kind of extraordinary encounters with different people. There was uh, one afternoon I found myself uh, in conversation. It wasn't a straightforward conversation because uh, this chap was a Rwandan, um, and he didn't speak much English. My French was non-existent. So um, so anyway, we kind of muddled our way along and so. But it turned out that. Uh, this, this young Rwandan was a church planter um, from Rwanda into the, into the Democratic Republic of Congo. They would go across the border in planting teams, set up churches, um, and you know, from there then try to reach one. He was, he was showing me uh, his planting teams that kind of goes out with these young men and women who go with him. And then he got to this, this point, there was this, this, this team and and the next one kind of, and the picture had kind of, it had kind of like hearts and things all the way around it. Um, and, uh, and he said, oh, you know, this is what, what the name was. And um, yeah, he was, uh, yeah, he was killed by militia three weeks into planting. And then the next, next picture, this was whatever his name was, uh, again, also killed. And then another one, half his team uh, was killed by militia. I mean, that, that's planting in the, the Congo for you. It is dangerous. And I just really struck that, that here was this, this young man kind of willing to take the gospel to places like that. But then what really struck me, you know, you have one of those kind of quite intense moments. But then, then, it's like, you know, you kind of like talk about ripping your heart out. Then, then, then he starts with these other people and, um, and, and he's like, oh, this is my new team. And of course, oh, this what this is. And then, and then it kind of hit me, kind of like, like the, these these young men and women joining uh, joining a team to fill the places of those who had been killed about six weeks earlier to take the gospel into the Congo. And you just think, and 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 there's me. I kind of I'm I'm worried that if I talk to the, you know the, the the guy at the bar about my faith, what will they think of me? And, and, you know, I kind of, I, I'm even sort of worried, you know, kind of when I, when I talk to the, the, the person that's coming to church and you kind of think, oh, what, what story are they going to bring? You know, how's, how's this conversation going to play out? 
I asked him this the Rwandan guy because of you know kind of like how you know how, how do you recruit a team to do this you know how do, how do you get these people to kind of and, and he's, he's, he quoted from 2 Corinthians 5 he said because of the the love of Christ compels us and you know you know as as he's you know he's thinking about how the gospel shapes and changes him he he was completely convinced that God is the sort of God who doesn't give up on people, who is willing to go after them, and therefore confident in that, who is willing to go. It's striking, isn't it, that the great, that, you know, the great commission, uh, as Jesus sends disciples out into the world. You know, the first word in in that commission is go, isn't it? Go. God is a God who doesn't give up on people. And we see that in, as a character of him. Now, as we've been thinking about love, I want to see that, that firstly, that God doesn't give up on us. Okay? And so we don't give up on other people. That, that's the kind, of the, the kind of the pattern I want to see about the, the, how the character of God change, changes us, but also changes how we view others. Now, uh, we are creatures made by God to love and, and to be loved. And, um, and as we earlier in the, in the previous session, we were looking in uh, Romans 5 about this love that is lo- unlike any other love that we might experience. The, you know, the, the, the God who sets his love on his enemies, uh, on sinners. And, and of course, that leaves us kind of astonished because we're that enemy. We're that sinner that God has loved. And... Um, and as we, as we do that, my, again, my praying is as we see this bigger picture of God, that that would then kind of move us and change and shape us to know and rejoice in the love of God. Now, in, uh, in Hosea, it's on page uh, 902 uh, in the Bibles, 902, uh, we, we're going to see two interconnected love stories. Okay. And... Um, uh, we, we dive into Hosea. We're, we're in the 9th century BC. And uh, uh, Hosea is called to speak to both the northern kingdom of Samaria, of Israel, and the southern kingdom uh, of Judah. And in chapter 1, uh, if you want to turn over to it, uh, chapter 1, we, we're introduced to Hosea, uh, verses 1 and 2. So verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri. Uh, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Azariah, and Hezekiah. And that's a long time that he's a prophet. Okay, so it's quite a long, kind of long ministry. And as, uh, through, his, through his ministry, God is, uh, is telling a love story, a first one that then helps tell uh, a second story. And that second story is the story of God's love for his people. And of course, that includes me and it includes you. And these chapters, opening chapters of Hosea, are astonishing because they speak of this relentless, pursuing, never giving up, never running out love. So we'll look firstly at the first of those two stories, and it's the love story of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea and Gomer. And, um, and I want to tell that story first because this story helps us understand the second story. Uh, in between uh, chapter one, where we're introduced to Hosea, and uh, when Hosea is told to uh, marry 
Uh, we then, in chapter two, uh, it starts talking about something else. And then in chapter three that we had read, it goes back to um, Hosea and, and Goma again. So, so it, chapter two, if you like, is sandwiched in between the story of Hosea and Goma. And chapter two is about God and his people. Uh, and they both help interpret the other. Now, uh, the, the, the opening of Hosea is shocking, okay? And, um, you know, for, uh, it, it, we, we didn't have it read, uh, but there in verse 2 we're told that when the Lord began to speak uh, through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Dibbalim, uh, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, uh, we're meant to be shocked by that, that the, the, kind of the, the NIV kind of smooths it over a little bit for us. It makes it a, a, just a, a little bit more comfortable because, because um, literally it is to say to Hosea, go, marry a prostitute, have children with this prostitute because like a prostitute, this land has been unfaithful like a prostitute to the Lord. Four times we're told that. And, um, uh, and the NIV is a little bit uncomfortable with that, you know, kind of, and it is because it is meant to be shocking. I, by the way, a word to the kind of the teenagers here, or maybe those who are a bit new to the church, is that uh, the, I, I remember being quite shocked when I first discovered that the Bible talks about matters that, that I was quite familiar with talking at school, but was really surprised to find it was in the Bible. Um, but like, we're not to be surprised by that. The Bible talks about human life, and we're not to prejudge the Bible. Um, but this is necessary for us to hear. Well, uh, we're meant to be shocked that kind of God would say this to his prophet. Um, but just think what was going through Hosea's mind at this point. It's kind of like, yeah, is, is there another option for my ministry, uh, if that's all right? You know, kind of, like, well, uh, oh, Lord, I'll, I'll go to Nineveh instead of Jones, uh, Jonah, okay? Those Ninevites, I'd rather go there. Lord, I'll, I'll bury my underpants like, like Jeremiah, kind of. What am I going to tell my mum? I mean, this, is, this guy is going to have to come out. So anyway, he, he obeys the Lord and uh, he, he goes, he finds uh, Goma who we assume was a prostitute, um, and together they have children. Um, move this quite quickly, they, they have children, uh, children with interesting names, uh, but the names just tell us about the relationship between the Lord and the people. And again, we're, we're to see this really clearly. So again, look back at, at, uh, at verse 2, when he says, you know, go and marry her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. This, this, this married relationship is a picture of the relationship between Israel and the Lord. Now, uh, yeah, we get to the end of chapter one and, and no more we hear of Hosea and Gomer because the focus switches in chapter two of now of the love story of God and his people. But um, uh, of course, the, that unfaithfulness is the descriptor of Israel that they too are, we're told, like a promiscuous wife, prone to adultery, but this time to spiritual adultery. And so they're, they're, they've gone after uh, foreign gods. Uh, they've gone after the idols in their name. They've, they're like uh, like uh, wedding vows they've been incapable of keeping. 
They've broken their covenant with God. But when we pick up the story in chapter 3 again uh, of Hosea, which is what we're focusing on the moment, um, we have to work out what's going on, okay? because it is uh, what, what's happened in the meantime. And the story in chapter 3 kind of jumps back in. So uh, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Now, these sacred raisin cakes weren't just kind of irresistible, delicious, fresh from the bakery kind of cakes. You know, that's a, those sort of things that's like, oh, I'll have one of those. No, this, this, this was, these were cakes used in idol worship. Okay, I, uh, uh, commentators seem to say. So, but um, don't miss, this is really important, in verse one, please don't miss that one word that helps them see what's going on here. He said, the Lord said to Hosea, go, show your love to your wife again. Again, don't miss the significance of that. Because what's transpired is that Goma has left Hosea. She's left him to be with another man. The one Hosea uh, married and has loved has left him and now she's in the arms of another man. Now, you can imagine all sorts of things that people were saying, can't you, about that? You can imagine how, uh, how you know, what, what all the... All that kind of uh, was said to, to Hosea in the midst of all of that. You know, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. You knew what she was like. It was always going to end that way, Hosea, wasn't it? But the Lord says to him, I want you to go and love her again. And so we read in verse 2 that Hosea says, so... <laughs> Uh, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. And what's going on? Well, again, it, it, it's, what's going on is that uh, Homer's, uh, Hosea's wife, Goma, is being sold uh, as a slave. Uh, the man that she's with, I, I suspect it was probably a pimp, has put her up for sale. And for, for whatever reason, you know, he no longer wants her. He's used her and, and, uh, and now he gets what he can for her. Uh, maybe it was that Goma was put up for sale in the marketplace. That was the common practice in that culture at that time. There, for, as slaves were, and Hosea kind of goes and finds her there. Or maybe it was that uh, Hosea made his way to her owner to buy her back. Either way, Hosea's responding to the Lord's commands and goes and finds her and he agrees a price for her. Uh, he will love his wife again. The one who abandoned him for other men. The one who's love, found love somewhere else. Just imagine what's going on in, in Hosea's thoughts as he's making that journey to go and buy back his wife. All the, the kind of the looks from the crowd. You know, look, he's, he's going to go buy his wife. <laughs> Hosea, yeah, he was a prophet, you know, but not a very good one. Didn't predict that, did he? All that shame, that embarrassment. You know, as he, as he hands over this price to this man who has, who, who has taken his wife, that, that Hosea who left, the, 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 
the promise of a lie just to find uh, in herself a, a life of misuse and ultimately rejection. And there uh, on the table, 15 shekels of silver, about a homer and lethek of barley. And so he buys her back. <coughs> Technically, he's redeemed her. Uh, and he brings him home. Now, again, you know, the question we're left here is, uh, as, as he, you know, what, will, what will Hosea do and say towards Gomer now? After all that she has done, will, will, will he treat her just as you know, her, her former lover did, as a, an object of lust, a, a vessel to be used and discarded? No. No, remember, uh, Hosea's been told, hasn't he, to love her again. This is an extraordinary story because this could be a story about honour and shame. This could be a story where you say, look, you know, you will, you will sh- display through your wife how she shamed you. This could be uh, a story about guilt and forgiveness. But before all of those things, this is a story about love. Love her again, Hosea. And so as he takes her home, he tells her, verse 3, uh, he says, uh, Then I told her, you are to live with me uh, for many days. You know, you, you are to be my wife again. You know, as you are with me uh, for, for many days, you know, I'm committed to you. I'm going to love you and keep loving you. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will behave in the same way towards you. Goma, you are coming home with me. It's where you belong. And this is going to be your life. You are going to be in a home shaped and marked by love. That is where you belong, Goma. Whatever you've done, whatever your, your, your past, whatever's, what is after that, I'm not going to count that against you. I'm not going to keep reminding you of what you've done. No, I'm going to love you and keep loving you. Now, why is Hosea told to do that? Why is he commanded to love her again? Why, why is she to belong to Goma and, sorry, Goma to belong to Hosea and nobody else? Well, because it's a picture, isn't it? Now, look, we, we don't know how the story ends. It stops here. Verse four moves on again to something else. But that's the point. The end, how the story works out isn't the point. Because this is telling in picture the story. The love story of God for his people. And that I want to focus on now. You see, these stories, they mirror and illustrate each one another. So verse 4, chapter 3, it, it switches. For the Israelites will live for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterwards, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. So God's people will seek the Lord. They'll return to him. And once again, there will be this living under God's faithful Davidic king, their rightful king. You see, this is a story about God pursuing in love his people. So turn back 
flip back to uh, chapter, uh, chapter 2, uh, which tells this story. Uh, verses 1 to 13 uh, give some detail about just how far Israel have strayed from God. Uh, they've broken his covenant and they've gone after other gods. So, for example, verse 8, uh, speaking of Israel, she has, uh, she has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used for bar. Yeah, this, there is the, the very gifts that, that kind of God had given to them in this land uh, of this, this grain to eat, the oil from the, from the olives, the wine to drink. They'd taken those gifts from their covenant God. And what had they done with them? They'd, they'd taken to the shrine of the Baal and to the Canaanite gods. And they'd placed them there as an offering to them. Verse 13 concludes, I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the Baals. She decked herself with rings and jewellery and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. She went after lovers, but in doing so, she forgot the Lord. And so verse 14, where we begin our reading, it begins, therefore. Now, again, what do we expect God to say at this point? You've rejected me for other loves. You've abandoned me. You've taken advantage of me and you've misused me. What do you think God will do? God is concluding that his people went after other lovers, that she forgot him and misused him. Therefore, surely, surely we would expect God to say, therefore, therefore, verse 14, I will give up on her. That's what we'd expect. She's broken the covenant promises. She's broken my heart. She's continually been unfaithful to me. And therefore, enough is enough. So what we read in verse 14 is extraordinary. But that is because God's love's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to get your head round. Uh, you're supposed to feel stunned uh, again because uh, in the light of his unfaithful people, God says, verse 14, therefore, I am now going to allure her. I'm going to allure her. I'm going to give myself her. I'm going to love her and keep loving her and win her back. I will love her again and again and again. I'm going to pursue her and I'm not going to give up on her. I'm going to love her in such a way, with such a love, that they will see that my love is so glorious and so precious that the kind of the other loves that they've been chasing after, uh, the things that they've hoped for will just start to pale into insignificance. It's a love that is intent on loving us so well, so deeply, so persistently and so wonderfully that we will begin to love him back. A, a love that is so satisfying, so glorious, so joyful, so all-consuming, a secure love that, that as we're loved like that, we will love him more. And those idols that have gripped our hearts, those dreams that we've gone after, well, they will loosen their grip uh, on our hearts. But notice verse 14 uh, as he continues. 
He says, I will lead her into the wilderness. What does that mean? Well, in, in, uh, in the story of Old Testament Israel, they, they, at times they were uh, rejected by God uh, to rouse them from their waywardness. And ultimately that led to uh, the exile, uh, a, a time, if you like, of undoing of the exodus. So as God brought his people out of Egypt through the wilderness, so he then, when they broke the covenants, they were almost sent back into captivity as slaves. But, but here the point is this, isn't it? In the wilderness, God will speak to them. Uh, verse uh, 11 uh, to 13, speak of how God will expose the idolatry of his people uh, and the inability of the Baals to provide them. He says, if you look, just look back, I will stop all her celebrations, the yearly festivals, her new moons, the Sabbath days, her appointed festivals. I will ruin the vines and her fig leaves, which she laid uh, to pay for her lovers. I will make them a thicket and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she has burned incense to the Baals. In other words, I will take you to a place where you will see the folly of going after these idols. And as you uh, experience the foolishness of that devotion, you'll find yourself in a place where those idols are silenced and the voice of God is heard. Now, I guess uh, nobody wants to find themselves in that place, do they? But here is a place where they will be able to hear what they most need. And that is the voice of their lover, of their God. Now look, for friends, for us, it's the, the real danger for us, I think as Christians, by and large, is, is not that we fall into unbelief. I don't think that's the danger. No, I think the danger is that we become preoccupied. Preoccupied with, you know, the, the pursuit of security. Yeah, that, uh, of uh, being able to have our own property, uh, to just have a bit more in, in the pension pot, to be able to enjoy ourselves in all the stresses and strains of life, something that will help us through that, keep us going. All, all that sort of stuff, we, we become preoccupied. We've done it. All these things that you know, we're always demanding our attention. There's always something, isn't there? There's always something going on. And guess what? None of us like being brought into the wilderness. Now, what that meant for Israel then... <laughs> It's one thing, so they might hear, friends, I, God does this still. I, I, you know, I don't want to be prescriptive about the wilderness, it will mean different things for different people, but in some way, somehow, God loves you and will bring you to a place where, if necessary, it might seem that you're under his judgment. And he's doing that not because he is wanting to condemn you or he doesn't like you, or that, you know, you're not doing what uh, he wants you to do or anything like that. What he's really doing is bringing to a place where you can know you are loved. A, a place where you can hear him. 
let me um, again just try, try to illustrate this. Um, as a, uh, when uh, Helen and my wife were engaged, we were heavily involved in the life of our church. Really, really busy. Just lots of things going on. I just loved all that. And we both had lots of energy and time and, and enthusiasm. And, uh, you know, and, and, and just, just loved just getting stuck in. Well, did, did you really love that? About um, three months um, before our wedding, uh, kind of literally in the, over the space of a weekend, from being this kind of super, super busy, uh, Helen went to, went to being not being able to get out of bed uh, with a post-viral fatigue. Um, and, and literally was incapacitated and was so for the next year and a half. Um, and and that, that place was a really hard thing. We had all these expectations for the wedding, all these things that we were looking forward to early married life, the, the honeymoon that was booked, the things we'd be able to do. We, we longed to be able to, to kind of serve together as husband and wife and all the things that all the things we were looking forward to. And, and we found ourselves in, in, in this completely different place and we didn't want to be there. And what was God teaching us? I'm thankful. So, uh, a, uh, you know, my, my church leader was so, so, so helpful in this because he, he, he didn't allow me to give in to kind of despair, kind of wondering what, what, how, you know, what's this going to mean for our lives? Kind of saying, what's God doing here in this? And what we had to learn was that, that actually, you know, kind of our love for the Lord is more important than our service of our Lord. Uh, I, our love for one another isn't based on what the other does for the other. We learn to serve each other. That was deeply humbling. Uh, very much, verse 14, uh, we were led into the wilderness and God spoke tenderly for us. And in many ways, we learned lessons there that set us up for the rest you know, of our married life since and certainly ministry. Now I have your attention, I will speak to you. But look, speak tenderly to you. Tenderly. It means to speak the gospel to her. Israel's going to hear words of grace. Uh, don't you know, this afternoon as we, we gather together, that, that God might be, he might be at this moment, drawing you to himself so that he's got your attention, so that he can speak tenderly to you. He wants you to do, wants you more than all that you do. He wants you to grasp that what is most important is, that is, is your relationship with him, that he might declare and show his love to you, so that you might love him more. And to speak tenderly more than anything else, more than anything, means to speak of Jesus. It's not a surprise that then, you know, it, it, it comes up at the end of chapter 3, the end of this section, that what he's going to talk about, the Davidic king. And what Israel only saw in shadow, a glimpse of what was to come, the, the great King David's greatest son, the, the, the king who would have the eternal throne, is the one whom we know. The one who redeemed us, who walked to that place of shame, to the cross, was mocked and crucified, stripped, and then left for all to see, to die. You see, here, don't we, we see a picture most clearly of, uh, in Hosea of the Lord Jesus himself, the, 
bridegroom, the one who loved his people, who loves us. And look, we know, don't we, you know, we're the ones who are prone to wonder. We know that, that when I was an unbeliever, I was lost and without hope and without help. And, and, uh, and, uh, and even though I've been rescued from that, is, is my heart set on the Lord constantly? No. No, I'm caught up in the hopes and the pleasures and the cares of this world. The promises of satisfaction and fulfilment and joy and hope. All, all calling out from the world and, and again and again, I'm loved by Jesus. See, his, his voice calls out to me from, from the crowd. says, I will pay for him. He is mine. And I will buy him with my blood. My life for your waywardness. My faithfulness, my righteousness for your spiritual adultery, I will pay for it on the cross so that grace and mercy might come running to meet us in our sin. But notice as well, God doesn't just leave us there. What does Jesus do when he makes us his own? Does he condemn you? No. Does he throw the law at you? Does he crush you? Does he shame you? No. No, what he does is he covers our shame and our nakedness. Uh, He covers it with a beautiful robe of righteousness. His righteousness that makes us resplendent and glorious and covers our shame uh, and our failure. And he, he whispers to us as he lifts up our head. He says, walk with me without fear, without shame. You are mine. You're coming home with me. Because you are the bride of the king. You see, Hosea does it wonderfully, fits into this big picture of the story of the Bible. Jesus, the one who came to buy a people for himself. Uh, one whose love is, is stronger than our sin. Uh, his love is, is, is there for us even in our unfaithfulness. His grace more than our waywardness. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 19. These words, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. There, that unfaithful, prone to wander bride will say at this sort of, this, this wedding, if you like, I will. And I will be faithful. Now here's an echo, isn't there, of of the wedding, the wedding that is to come. It's there, we read about in Revelation 19, don't we, of the bride, uh, bridegroom, uh, the Lord Jesus who meets his bride. And we read these words, hallelujah, for the Lord almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And there's this picture of the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, we're told, as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. If you're watching earlier, the picture of our king wearing these kind of robes. We look at them and just think, oh, it's a bit silly, isn't it? Why do you wear these kind of things? 
And I'm like, well, see, don't we, that, that here, here is uh, the, the, the promise for his people in Christ is that you will be dressed in such resplendent glory that no eyes will look upon you and say, oh, he looks a bit ridiculous. No, it's such righteousness and justice uh, that is uh, clothed upon us to be the people of God fit for him, not because of ourselves, but because of his grace. You see, his love will be seen to win out. And that love will transform our love as it makes us beautiful. A a, a tender love, a love that is righteous and is merciful towards us, a, a love that is unendingly faithful towards us. And as we are loved like that, so we will grow to love like him. Well, isn't it great? What a glorious picture. I wonder if you long for that day. It's, it's, a church, it's a prayer that's been used by the church down the centuries that I can honestly say I hardly ever hear prayed in the church in England today. It's that prayer, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Don't, don't hear it prayed. And the question is, is, why don't we pray that? It's because actually we say, Lord, yeah, we're happy to come. But actually before you come, I've got an agenda. I've got things I'd quite like to do, Lord, before you come. There's places I want to see. There's things I want to do. There's a life I want to carve out. So yes, Lord, come, but come when I'm old and broken and frankly had enough of life. But till then, Lord, if it can just delay, then um, that would suit me. Why don't we pray that? Come, Lord Jesus, because, because that day we will be brought before Christ. I guess, isn't it, that the, the problem is, it's not just that we've got all these things that we'd like to do, is that actually, where is our heart set? Well, isn't it often on these things around us? Oh, that we might know and love the Lord Jesus, just a fraction of how he has loved us, so that we would just be aching for that day when we will see him face to face. Isn't that the prayer? To be there before him in his eternal glory. To know that that work that God has been doing me over the years as he's conforming me into the likeness of his son, as he's been loving me with this relentless pursuing love, as he's been at work in changing me, will be finally fulfilled and completed before the bridegroom. Now maybe you've just not thought of Jesus as the one who loves you in that kind of way. Well, here's the test, I think. If, we've, if we are really loving Jesus like that, we will see that love expressed in our love for others. Again, as I began, uh, those words from uh, reminded to me about the Rwandan church planter. The love of Christ compels us. How can we be indifferent to the lost? How can we be indifferent to those who are without hope and without God? How can, we, how can we be indifferent? Because, well, indifference is the opposite of love. It's not hate. It's indifference. 
And so for those who have got cold hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ, they're going to find that they're indifferent. Well, they're indifferent to him and they're indifferent to others. But you see, this, this, this love, that the love of God that's, that runs after his people, that will seek to win her and woo her, to pursue her, well, that love changes us. <coughs> A love that sent Jesus into the world. The one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The one who gave up the privileges and the glory of heaven to become humbled a servant. To give his life even uh, on a cross. The God who pursues us sent his son into the world. The one who has loved us does not give up on us. And when we know that love, it changes us. We tried to do a church plant from our previous church about six years ago. It was one of the low points in our time there. We prayed about it. We envisaged people. We helped people try to kind of get on board. We did everything that we could. We had a, a really gifted young man willing to lead that, who the congregation loved and knew. But when we approached people, even those who were living in the area where this church plant was, do you know the things they said? We want youth provision for our children and there won't be that at the church plant. Now, some of our friends aren't going and would miss them. We don't want to be part of a smaller church. We'll just be too busy. It was heartbreaking. I see, when we have this vision of the God who relentlessly goes after people, why will we not go? Why? Because we don't have that vision of God's love. I, I, look, I'm not. I'm not trying to embarrass and shame us. There, there, there are there are different things where you know we have different different experiences, different responsibilities. But, but where is our heartbeat? That's the question. Where is our heartbeat? Will we love the Lord Jesus? Because he's the one who has first loved us. Let me pray. <coughs> Father, um, bring to mind the words of the old hymn. Uh, let that grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to you. I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, that you would indeed take our hearts as we experience and know your pursuing, relentless, unending, never giving up love. And so take our hearts and seal it for you. We long, Lord, for the day when you return to bring us home. And we thank you that you have made us your home. And so, Father, we pray uh, that as your people, we will be those who know your love and are compelled by it. Uh, so that as we are sent out into the world, we might take this love to others. But we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.